0: recognizing especially in circles that I've sat or read of how other believers speak um about immigrants and about undocumented people or even the words that they use that are hurtful and I am shocked and surprised that they're people that love God and I'm just like, do they skip over some of these passages that talk about kindness and compassion or that talk about Jesus loving, you know, their neighbor? And um, and that's really where I've been like, okay, I have to say something, even though I'm scared, and even though um, uh, it, it it might come back with with some cost for me. Welcome to Listener, a Crew podcast
1: platforming staff and ideas from across the organization. I'm your host, Sam Holland. Today's guest is Janet Diaz, serving with Crew's High School Ministry in Houston. And shout out to Dominique Dawson for recommending Janet. Enjoy the show. So I have been looking at the blog Wordless Voice, and I don't know if that's um, your blog or if you're a contributor to that blog or both, but it's, I love the tagline where your words are understood. So can you tell me more about that blog?
0: Yeah, it is a blog that I, um, started just on my own, (laughs) um, but really in conversation with the Lord, I, around 2015, um, was it 2015? Yeah. Around 2015 I started to oh, I was spending some time with the Lord especially in Romans 8:26 and I get you know I'd read that before so you know how it is like when you're reading scripture you just don't you read it again and then you're like whoa I'd never seen that or it's spoken in a new way. So it was really fun to just um hear from God, uh, at that moment specifically where it talks about, um, uh, that the spirit intercedes for us with wordless groans. And I was like, wordless groans. I was like, wow, I'd never had really dissected what wordless, like what kind of language the Holy Spirit has with the Lord. And, um, even interceding for me when I just didn't have any words to say. And though I've experienced that before where I've been like, I don't even know what to say in my prayer, Lord, but I really want to. And then, you know, sometimes I don't, but the Holy Spirit just does it. So around that time, you know, I just kind of took that and wrote it in my journal and just kind of kept meditating on it. Um, uh, little did I know that a few months later, in March of 2016, I had returned um, on staff with the high school ministry and crew, and um, I'd returned from a, a mission project that we had in Spain. And, um, and our son just immediately started to feel really bad. And I thought, well, it, was, it must be just, you know, some, uh, you know, coming from overseas, and he was only 14, 15 months old. So, um, but it started to get worse. And back and forth, going to doctors, they just kept saying it was something else, constipation and, and things that I was like, it's just not that. And, and kind of to, sh- long story short, in May, he ended up getting hospitalized. The, the, the GI doctor was like, this is not constipation. I was like, I know, but no one believes me. And then I thought, well, he's just going to get meds and he's going to go in the hospital, uh, you know, get meds and we'll go home. And they said, we have to, you know, put him in the hospital um, he needs to be admitted, and I was like, "Wait, wait a minute! I didn't want that much," and he was only fifteen months old, and so he ended up having a uh, spondylodiscitis, which is a rare um, uh, infection in the spine, in lumbar two and three, and he ended up having. Adult doctors, because it's very rare for a baby to have that, and we already had had some challenges with our daughter who has some special needs, and so I remember that the doctor, the surgeon, the the um the the spine surgeon came in and said, you know, this is really rare. This is more than likely why no one had really told you what he had, and um, he left out of the room. And I looked at my husband and I said, "Are you serious?" and I really wasn't talking to my husband. I was really talking to the Lord. I was like, are you serious? Um, because we had had challenges with our daughter before, and it took me so long to just be in the place of, um, I was in such denial about my daughter's condition. And, you know, I had I'd felt when I was pregnant with my daughter that I had been like, like, um, Samuel's mom. And I had just given her to, given her to the Lord and she was going to be healthy and, and great. And of course, if, if I had done that, nothing would happen to her. And, um, little did I know later when she was diagnosed with, um, low muscle tone and then some other underlining things, I just, the Lord convicted my heart that I had been really, um, conditioned with my prayers, you know, that I was like, oh, of course she's going to be fine because I've given her to the Lord. And through like almost a year and a half, the Lord really pressed in my heart back with my daughter that, you know, she, she, he really pretty much said, look, I'm telling a story in her life. Are you gonna, you know, are you going to pretty much be a part of it? because I'm still going to tell that story. Are you going to pout through it or are you going to actually join this story? And I was like, finally, after probably a year and a half, I surrendered to that. I was like, you're right, Lord. So fast forward to this moment with my son now. So when I looked at my husband, I was like, are you serious? But I was mostly like, wait, are we doing this again? (laughs) And um, because we had had concerns that he would have the same thing, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't the same thing. It was totally different. And I found myself... You know, after my husband had to leave and go with my daughter alone in that hospital room. And, you know, I'm sure you've been to the doctor with your kids and, you know, it's always cold and not really the best comfortable place you're at. And I found myself with my baby just holding him. And I just did not have the words to express to the Lord how I felt. And all I could say was God or Jesus. And then I would just start bawling. And the Lord in that I ended up spending five weeks in the hospital with him and just it lived in the hospital pretty much in the hospital. And then in, in, in the rehab facility, just because the condition of his was so rare, they normally if like an adult would have it, they would send you home with a, the, the medicine that would kind of pump to your heart and um, uh, or through your blood and they'd send you home but since he was a baby they couldn't do that and so he needed to be hospitalized so I found myself living there and really a lot of times not having a lot how to express myself to the Lord and he reminded me of months before when he had said you know that the spirit would intercede for me with wordless groans and I just felt at that moment that all I could do was groan really all I could do was bawl and cry for my baby and um and, and, and found myself in that moment. But this time, it didn't take me a year and a half like it did with my daughter. This time, you know, I he just flooded me with the reminders of his goodness and this incredible story he wanted to tell or he wants to tell with my son who had already, you know, we'd already had trouble having him. We'd already had some stuff with him. And it was just another reminder of what God wants to do in me and in my son and in our family and so anyways that's kind of long you know about my blog but I kept writing and um I still was like now that I had gone through that with my son I was like what do I do with this information and God put it like around the end of 2016 probably around um August a little bit before August I had already been thinking about it and he was like, "Why don't you start a blog?" And was, and my husband said that out loud to me, and I was like, "A blog? Gosh, I'm not really a writer. I'm not really good at grammar, and I don't really want the whole world to judge me <laughs> on how much, you know how I write or how wrong it looks." Um, but I started researching it, and I sat on it for like months. Like after I bought the domain and all the research I'd done, I sat on it for months before I actually pushed publish because it was, it's nerve wracking to put all your stuff out there. So that's kind of the long story of why I started to um, share that. But um, the reason that it's like um, where your words are understood, uh, you know, again, like I feel like the spirit can understand our words when we don't have the capacity to fully explain what we're trying to say. And then on the other hand, too, I just felt like there's a lot of things in my life that I've you know, wanted to express but I felt um I couldn't at times, sometimes because of my gender, uh, because of my um story as an undocumented person in the United States, or because of, you know, the belief that maybe a woman couldn't lead or couldn't do and I wanted to just kinda share stories or Situations that maybe don't get told a a lot. Uh, Right now, it's been mostly about like my experiences with my family or my own experiences in life. Um, But voicing that is just really important to me. Well, I'm so glad that you started that vlog,
1: and that's a powerful story about how God brought you to that point where you were thinking about that wordless voice. I read a post about that sort of told some of your story, Janet, about mm-hmm. um, being mm-hmm. from El Salvador and coming to the United States when you were four.
0: Can you tell us more mm-hmm. about that story? Yeah, so um, I was born in El Salvador, which is a, a little small country in Central America and um, at the time when I was born, uh, about a year before the Civil War had started, Um, really all the details to the reasons of the civil war is just, you know, tends to be a lot of political reasons. And um, but immediately, of course, you know, especially in the city where my parents lived, um, just just there were no jobs. And there was just um, uh, nothing (laughs) that my parents could do anymore. And so my dad said that his brothers had started traveling to the U.S., had immigrated to the U.S., and um, there was work here, and so um, they encouraged him to come. And so he did and um, was not successful a couple of times, and then he was successful. And in that year that he um, spent you know, saving money, he um, sent for us for my mom and I and my mom's so funny because she's like I just thought I was gonna fly there and we were gonna land and it was just me she goes so I wore heels I was like really you wore heels? she's like I just wanted to look nice I was like okay and um that's not the way we were gonna travel to the U.S. and um, we did fly to Mexico but from there we um we ended up walking to the border and to cross the river. And, um, the, it was July, 1983 and, um, the U S was celebrating (laughs) independence day. And to us, it was just so significant that if we made it across, it was really going to be an independence from, you know, the war from poverty and just starting over. Um, My dad, when he had traveled to Mexico, he was sleeping outside in a car, like kind of by a car, and a missionary family saw him and um, invited him to to stay with them while he was waiting to see what what he would do next, and so when he... He said to them, when I, you know, asked, I try to get my my daughter and my wife to come, will you receive them? So we stayed with them a few hours. and They welcomed us into their home. And then we um, started the journey at night. It is, um, everybody's story of coming to the U.S. is different, especially of any immigrant family. Um, This is ours. You know, we we stayed with this family. And then they, once you, um, the people who are bringing us in, we're ready um we walked about five hours to the border I you know a lot of people will ask me well, do you remember you know and I was four and so you're kind of like I the only thing that I was that I vividly remember is it was dark there was a full moon and um also that we had to be very quiet because I was the only kid in the group And, um, the guys kept telling my mom, you know, to make sure that I was quiet because if the cows start mooing, then, you know, it'll alert people that there's people out there. So we, um, crossed the the river and my mom says, you know, I was so little. Then someone put me in their back and crossed over and she said there was someone there waiting for us. And we came straight to Houston and, um... You know, and of course, you're little, so you have no really awareness of what that means until you start getting older. Or even, you know, we lived with other family, or just even the poverty level. The type of work that my parents were gonna have here is a car wash. That's what my parents did for years. They worked at a car wash, but it kind of gives you an idea of like, they just needed work, you know, and so it wasn't like they were coming here to become doctors or lawyers or to take someone's job. But it was really some labor job, and um, that's what my mom did too, and and my dad for, for years, until they kind of got other types of labor jobs, um, and that's how we, you know, came. So. On your blog, you
1: told us that there's several stories in the Bible that tell us about the foreigner Mm -hmm. um, and how to treat the foreigner. And you quoted this Leviticus 19 passage, verses 33 and 34, that says, when a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born. Love them as yourself, for you were foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Mm. And Jana, on your blog, you said that one of the reasons why you started writing and sharing stories and experiences about your life is not to be political or take a political side, but... So, that listeners and readers can develop genuine compassion for immigrants mm-hmm. and refugees. So, can you tell us more about that and just how you've seen God use
0: your voice and your story? Sure. I um, yeah, you know, it, probably in the recent, la- like, six, seven, probably about four years, I've tried to be more vocal about it. And I think it took me a long time to really just um acknowledge that need to be more vocal, especially about being undocumented, growing up in the states, how I came here um, and mostly the biggest reason was just the political change in this country and not at all to even get political or what sides or who's right or it was it's mostly the experiences unfortunately that I had with believers because I can definitely, have a conversation with a non-believer and if they say something that is you know hurtful or where I feel like wow that was really mean or something I can be like well you know they're just not um in the same spirit or in the body Um, but I can still have compassion and kindness towards them but the harder experiences that I've had have been with believers who um, don't speak kindly about um undocumented people are immigrants and they probably don't even know an immigrant or a document or at times they don't even know that I have been in that situation or I am an immigrant and so they're kind of speaking out of you know not even experience of really knowing and sitting with someone and so then it becomes really hard for me where I'm not normally confrontational and I don't like that and I want to be very kind and you know um, graceful and so but how do I still speak um, truthfully but also gracefully to people and kindly? And so, just um, recognizing, especially in circles that I've sat or read, of how other believers speak um, about immigrants and about undocumented people or even the words that they use that are hurtful. And I am shocked and surprised that they are people that love God. And I'm just like, do they skip over some of these passages that talk about kindness and compassion or and talk about Jesus loving, you know, their neighbor? And um, and that's really where I've been like, okay, I have to say something, even though I'm scared and even though um, uh, it, it, it might come back with, with some cost for me, <laughs> you know, it might say that. And I think my you know, I did I have experienced that and and I've sadly experienced that on staff, um, which has probably been the most hurtful place because, you know, again, if you're like at church and other people you're not yeah, you don't really know them and they're believers too, you're kinda like, man, that's a bummer But when it's people you know you work with or that you've sat with or that you love on and you're like, Oh wow, that's even more hurtful. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: I want to circle back to something that you were sharing about your kids, specifically when your son, you would come back from being overseas and your son had this medical condition, you had already been through some medical situations with your other daughter. And it seemed like you needed a lot of courage in that moment and Mm -hmm. strength from the Lord. And one part of your story that stood out to me was when you said, every time you think about your story, and how you arrived in the United States, you think about your mom's courage. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then you also wrote a whole article on Wordless Voice about biblical women of courage, like Hagar and Rahab and Esther Mm -hmm. and Mary. And even your bio on the Wordless Voice says that you especially enjoy teaching young ladies to live a life with purpose. So I wondered if you could talk Mm -hmm. more About that, how your own story and your mom's Mm. courage and the courage that you've had to have drives your engagement with students.
0: Yeah. So, my mom was 19 when she had me, and um, my dad was older than her. And my mom was, and my dad, um, extremely poor the type of poor that you had no shoes. Her mom would send her to sell. either candy or something when she was three to the markets in El Salvador and would tie it around her arms so that, you know, she could hold them as she kind of walked around the market. My mom was the one that her, her mom would consider, um, you know, sort of her right hand, the one that she knew she could depend on her at such a young age. And she wasn't even the oldest. And so, that all has already requires, you know, this strength and knowing that she has so much that she, um, that she's had to endure. And so she's worked since she was three and, um, she meets my dad. She, she, he sort of takes her out of, you know, this, this place of, of, of a lot of work that she had been doing, but, She pretty much, you know, was still alone because when my dad came, she just, you know, was by herself. I mean, at times she said, when I was young, she's like, sometimes there was no food, so you would eat and I just wouldn't eat and she's like sometimes I would pass out you know because I wouldn't eat and so I'm like gosh that is it's it's even though I consider that we were poor when we grew up in the U.S. that's not the kind of poor that you know I've never experienced that kind of poor we still had food and we still had provision and you I didn't really know I was you know what people would consider poor till I got older and I was like oh I guess we were kind of poor Um, but that is, it just requires a different type of perseverance that I don't have. And so, or that I want to have for sure. And so she was, you know, 19 when she had me. And then she, in that year that my dad was gone, she met the Lord and, um, and it changed her life. And so when she came to the U S you know, I told you, she thought she was coming and she was going to fly all the way here so she wore heels and she said you know when she started walking she was like you know my feet start of course they were they started getting really bad so um the guy that was bringing us he said well I have an extra pair of shoes and she's like but I didn't even have socks on so I had to wear these big old shoes and she, I can only imagine how her feet were when she finally was able to take them off she said like pretty much ripped them off of her feet just because of you know the stuff that grew on her feet and the and um the sweat and everything i'm sure and so i was like gosh when you think about that kind of strength or even protection or even um that that was the only option that she had that was the way that she came um was the only way that she could have saved you know us and um or saved me and her from continuing poverty and the war in el salvador and so i don't think her story gets told sufficiently um You know from that angle and just seeing her courage just really uh my mom is a lot more um woman that is a fighter and I and a lot of times I'm like I want to be that kind of fighter because I don't think I have the same type of courage that she does so seeing that perspective just encourages me and then also just you know a lot. I think I talk about that in my, in, in the latest post about, about women of courage in the Bible is just, sometimes we just talk a lot, or I've heard a lot of sermons and Bible studies about the men who are of course, courageous and deserve their, their spot. But a lot of the women get sort of like, oh yeah, there was an Esther and there was a this, you know, these women of courage, but we don't really hear a lot Uh, of messages spoken on these women maybe from another woman yes but not maybe sometimes as much given the platform they deserve I love the fact that you know some women there is no name to them and so I just like to place my own name in that Hmm. because I'm like yeah that that was just so strategic of the Lord right um and then in some cases there are their names and um and I love you know some of them how God especially like when the the woman that washed Jesus' feet with um, the perfume, the alabaster jar. I love that it says on there: everywhere the gospel will be shared, her story will be told. And I was like, whoa, that is so amazing, right? This woman who never says anything in that particular passage, but Jesus so so amazingly just, you know, is that sweet prince that defends her when these men and women probably were harshly rebuking her. And he just steps in and says, she's done a beautiful thing. And because of what she's done, her story will be told. I'm like, that's incredible. And so I think a lot of the times, you know, women are also, we deal with a lot of, um, a lot of things in the U.S. that um, I think there is a lot of great things that have happened, but still women can get, um, their voices sometimes are not as heard, but particularly ethnic women's voices are not as heard as much as, um, other women's voices, um, majority culture women. And, um, and even though they have their own struggles as well, you know, sometimes the voices or the stories or, um, the, the, the words that they have said are like, oh yeah, that was in history. Or those women have never had a place or a platform and here they are. And so my, um, You know, I I am on staff with the high school ministry, and I just love meeting mostly with young ladies. They, um, just because of you know the season that they're in in life, trying to figure out what they want to do, trying to figure out what it means to be a woman, and 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 then many of them just trying to find out do I want a relationship with Jesus or not, and some of them that do. Are what does that mean now that I have a relationship with Jesus and helping them to find their purpose within Christ. Um, one of the things that I'm passionate about is women that, um, ethnic women that graduate high school, go on to college if that's what the Lord wants for them or that's what they can do. And then just helping and encouraging them to use the platform that they have to be able to be a voice for other people, the oppressed or people that are marginalized like maybe some of them have been yeah yeah so um I had been involved at my church with youth ministry, and I went to a small Hispanic church here in Houston. In fact, it's the church that my mom found when she came to the U.S. In that time in the 80s, most of the churches had translations, like translators, and very few churches were all Spanish speakers. But she finally found this plant church that was meeting with a, you know, at a building with a different church, and um, and it was all Spanish speaking. And so we went to that church for many years, pretty much, oh gosh, I was, Like already, I already had a kid when we ended up moving to a different church, but we grew up there. And, um, so I had already always gotten involved and I always had like, sometimes I would watch TV shows, you know, like Christian channel or something. And I would see people going overseas and doing mission work. And I would be like, man, that'd be a cool job to have. But there's no such thing as a missionary job. That's like a side job, right? So I never thought that was a thing, till I went to when I was in college. I was going to a Bibli- uh, was going to a, a University of Houston here, but then I went was taking a side class at a biblical college. They talked about um, parachurches, and so I had had no involvement with crew. Didn't know what that was about, um, and I they said several of them but the one that stood out was crew and so at that time it was you know they didn't say crew they said campus crusade and um, I went up to the professor and I said well can you tell me a little bit more about this ministry because I thought it was a local ministry and he said oh I don't think you'd be interested because you'd have to raise support and I was like "Ha, ha 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 I pretended like I knew what he was talking about but I didn't even know what that meant either raising support so I said okay so I went and like typed it on my computer you know the old school way my parents did not were not about paying for internet so you know used to get those free 30-day AOL (laughs) trials and we would do that with the whole sound the whole like you know uh sound that if you picked up the phone it would mess it up so um I went on there and I looked it up and I was like oh this is like a big organization you know and I just went after looking through it all um I applied to become a volunteer with um student venture which it was called before crew high school and um and so that I just thought no one's gonna like this is like a big deal like who's gonna call me back or whatever So I went back to that class and there was another professor in that same class. It was like a group of professors. And he said, I I had known him before. And so he said, I need some help at the high school that I'm, you know, volunteering at. It's in my neighborhood. Would you come and help me? And I was like, well, I have two days off from school. I was in college. I'll, I'll go help. And when I was talking to him, I remember I said, you know, I applied for this organization called Student Venture. And you know, I don't know if they're going to call me or what's going to happen. And he's, I was like, do you know anything? And he goes, I'm on, I'm an intern with student Venture." And I said, what? He's like, I'll introduce you to the people. So he kind of got me connected with the ministry, the local ministry of Greer High School here in Houston. And, you know, I started going with him at that time. I was a part of his team, which was um, doing inner city ministry, which was really like what I wanted to do. And so they had some stuff at CSU that I could go visit. And in that process, I was like, wait, these people are missionaries. Like this is their life. Like this is a job. I I never thought it could be a job. And so the Lord called me to come. And interestingly, um, he called me when I was graduating college and the same year I graduated college, I, um, became a citizen of the u.s and that was like a major deal too and so i was like waving my flag as you i don't know if you've ever gone to an inauguration um a a ceremony of when you're going to be inaugurated to be um a citizen and um And so then everyone, there's like thousands of people there and they're all waving their flag. And my mom and I tried to come together, but she didn't pass the test initially, one of part of the test, because you have to take tests to get in and, um, or to, um, become citizen. And so I was there by myself and, um, it was just so great because you just had waited for that for so long and, um, but the Lord really, like, spoke to my heart and was like, you are a citizen of heaven regardless if you had could ever become a citizen of the U.S. Because being a U.S. citizen comes with incredible benefits, you know. And I was already graduating college. And when you are a resident, which I had become a resident of the U.S. with my parents, um, you don't have the same benefits as a citizen like scholarships and um, other things that you can be a part of that comes with being a citizen. And, um, and so that was kind of the beginning of God saying, like, I want you to do this for life, you know? And then I went to a thing at CSU and that, that same year. And God, you know, said, I, you know, come on staff. Like, I want you to, um, share the gospel and spoke to me through Isaiah. And, um, and I came on staff 2004 of that that January of 2004. <laughs> so, Janet, one of the things that you
1: said on your blog is that um, a lot of people in the United States don't understand immigration and the process. And I'm here to confess that I'm one of those people. I mean, actually reading Mm -hmm. your blog was the first time I really got a glimpse of what an immigrant goes through and kind of what the steps are, Mm -hmm. but I know that I don't even have the full picture. So What I learned was when you and your mom had been here 10 years, I think that was when Mm -hmm. you got your residency. And then Mm -hmm. like you were just telling us at the same time that you were graduating college is when you actually were approved for citizenship. But I know Mm -hmm. along the way, there's all these steps and money that you Mm -hmm. have to pay and Um, Mm -hmm. can you just tell us more? And even I saw that there's lawyers involved and you're getting cheated out of money along the way. And so Mm -hmm. can you just tell us more? What, what is that long process of becoming an American citizen like?
0: Yeah. So just, you know, even from the beginning, just every This is the thing about um, the hardship of immigration or even the immigration system is that every story is so unique and even each case is unique that's one of the hardship of why we have such a broken immigration system and why it's just such a long process. Um, it depends what country you're from. It depends how you came in. You know, it depends how old you are. So many different things. If you have any, um, you know, if, if um, you have any money or you don't have any money, what kind of jobs you have. So, so many things are, so many factors are taken into place. In our particular case, um, because of the civil war, that helped us but as my parents began that process, you know, in the 80s, there was less people of, of uh, Hispanic descent here or Latino descent. And so um, also there was uh, not a lot of people that spoke the language. So my parents were confronted with people that only spoke English and were cheated off of a lot of, or scammed you know and we're told go do this or go do that oh and then we need more money and the stories that my mom will tell me about her confrontation and the things that she had to say and do like or or the things that she had to stand firm on so that you know these lawyers could really move the process along so that's what caused really such so long so many years um and um I think it was more than 10 but um I was 13 at least when it when it happened and um at that time, um, depending on how immigration wants to do it, what country you're from, we had to go back to El Salvador to get everything done there. And so we had to travel back, which was a you know, a kind of a risky situation is you're like, Will I be back? And how long is this gonna happen? I was in school and so I remember my my history teacher said, Well then um, since you're me to gone so long, why don't you do a project on on that and that's how we'll grade it and he was so kind and it was really great. But um, So that, that was our thing. Becoming a resident is the first part that you have to, um, have to do. Some people, you know, um, will say, well, uh, you know, why don't, why, why don't people just get in line or why don't people just do it the right way? That's something that I've been told directly. Like, why don't you, you know, why didn't your mom and and you do it the right way? And there is no such thing as the right way. Um, there is no line, you know, it's not the DMV where I could just go in a line. This isn't that or a store where I just go pick my card, you know? And so this is, um, a process that really is unique to each person and each family. So in our particular case um, we, you so but but for sure you have to become a resident first. And so that took years and then to become a citizen is a whole nother application. So first you apply for residency, you go through all the documentation that they ask for you, all the interviews that they ask you, plus all the money. And if you have a lawyer, which is better, a lot of times, then you know you're depending that the lawyer is telling you what they know and 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 is truth. So my parents paid a lot of money until my mom was like, "There's no way I've given you so much money, and you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing," and so that was a a difficult season in their life. And, you know, we're talking about paying someone and you work at a car wash, you know what I'm talking about? So it's a lot, it's thousands of dollars and you are making what in the (laughs) eighties? It's not just like, Oh, I have this money sitting in my, you know, in my savings. And so my parents were working hard for it. And, um, then to become a citizen, my dad became a citizen first, so he he was supposed to ap- apply for me to become a citizen with him before I turned eighteen. But it did, wasn't something that was either registered in my dad or that he didn't wasn't aware of. I'm not sure, but he didn't, you know, ask for my for me to become a citizen. It would have been a little bit easier for me to just go under him, but he didn't. So then I became eighteen, and then it was like, well, now you have to apply on your own. And so my mom and I applied together. And, you know, so that's a whole nother cost, whole nother cost, a whole bunch of other interviews. And eventually, um, you take, uh, well, an interview in it, you take a test. Um, and there's a, a um, they tell you to study a hundred questions, and out of those hundred questions, they're gonna ask you ten, and they're all like government questions, like who's the president or who's the so and so senator or what you know stuff like that. Stuff that mm-hmm. I don't maybe even know. <laughs> yeah, a lot of people will say so that probably we don't remember. We studied it at school, but we forgot. And then they'll they'll have a written um, uh, sentence that the 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 agent or or the guy there will tell you that's doing the interview or the girl, and she'll say, you know, write this down. For me, it was very simple. My my sentence was. The Statue of Liberty is a gift from France, so it was easy. I'd come, I'd gone to school here, I grew up. But for my mom, she had a different sentence, and she just got nervous and just you know, and so you she didn't pass, and so you have to start, you have to start over, and get a whole another interview. Either it could be two months, it could be three months, it could be four. You just don't know. So, because we didn't pass together, that's why we didn't get sworn in together. I think I said inauguration earlier. It's more like sworn in. Um, and then, um, so we um, then you wait until you know you pass, and then you wait until they give you a date to become to go in and do the whole little um, swearing in. And so it's 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 really a whole process. Again, that's the way that that it happened to us with lots of other details in there. But every immigrant um or undocumented person it's different the way that their process works um a lot of the times it depends on what country also that they're from and that could be weights and so i know personally people family that are close to me that have been in that you know waiting list i guess you could say for 20 25 years um, and are still waiting for, for that to happen, and they don't have their documentation. Um, it's a little quicker to become a resident. I mean, a citizen. You have to be a resident for at least five years, and then you can become a, apply to become a citizen. Unless you marry a citizen, then it's a little shorter.
1: And so, when you came, he, you and your mom came here, and your dad was already here. Your mom had become a Jesus follower. So you, mm-hmm. you find this church, it's a Spanish-speaking church. Is it people from El Salvador plus a lot of other immigrants? Or, yes. And are they yeah. teaching you from early on to, to see kind of these, the, about the foreigner and the Bible and those kind of things? Or how does that, how did you start mm-hmm. to see, oh, this is actually something that God has been, yeah. the story that God has been telling for a long time?
0: Mm-hmm. That's a good question. So it was a mixed congregation of different countries from Latin America. Um, there was Salvadorians. Uh, because we live in Houston and it's so diverse, there was a lot of more Mexicans. It's just closer to the border um the pastor was colombian and his family so it was a different you know so vibe so you kind of learn all the different ways that people say it in their country you eat all the different foods so i kind of grew up with a mix of that um it was spanish speaking and really that was what i knew was being surrounded by people who you know had the same color skin as me and spoke spanish and um I really wasn't fully confronted or I don't know if confronted is the right word, but fully um, around majority culture people until I came on staff, which was like, wait, why are you calling me to this staff, this ministry? I had been around uh, people uh, that are uh, majority culture, but um, it was always on a setting of like, oh, a job that I had or my mom, the people that my mom worked for or maybe teachers at school, but I'd never been around fully like my whole you know the whole team that I was in or the group that I was going or the conference that I was going and so it was very like new and shocking so I think growing up in a in that in that culture you always knew that you had that you were different than the majority you knew that you spoke Spanish and and we were learning English so we spoke both and that you were darker skinned or that you know um there was um, prejudice against certain situations or things. And and even though my mom never specifically said this to us, some of the way that we were, um, that we sort of, or at least the way that I perceived things was the white people were always right, you know? They were correct, and you had a lot of respect and a lot of, um, uh, yeah, respect towards them, and even not going against their word, you know, and so and the the majority of the white people that I was around had been in those positions of authority. Um, So coming on staff and you're now like, oh, I'm kind of one of the group, but not really, you know, Mm -hmm. and then I have these own ideas of what I think I should be or act around um, white people, then that was it was interesting the journey that I've had to have just myself that the Lord's taking me through and even just the perception that other people have had of me being on staff. Um, so that I think is what really stirred and began to say, what does God have to say about the foreigner or the stranger, or even in the Bible, it does say the alien, you know, and interestingly enough, that's how, you know, we uh, undocumented people are identified a lot of the time. There's your alien card. Um, and so that sort of stirred in me a lot of that. Um, and, and then in 2016, when I was specifically felt that oh, I've been on staff for a while and um, I, uh, I feel comfortable around, you know, a little bit better around my staff and the staff that I'm in. I think it's OK for me to share my story of being undocumented and then realizing it wasn't it was still wasn't a safe place you know, sort of was like, pushed me into this, like, navigate more onto what that means. What does God say about the foreigner? What does God say about loving others? Because I had felt that it was comfortable in a city like Houston, especially. Um, And then I was like, oh, it's not, people are still not comfortable. And people still have these perceptions of how, what it means to come into the U.S. or what it means to be undocumented or what it, you know, or or even just the lack of knowledge of the immigration system and its brokenness, or even the process that someone has to go through, the expense that it requires, um, to um, to become a resident, you know, or even how what does it mean to get into the state you know for my mom she's like you know for us to have gotten a visa to come to the US we sh- we needed to have money in the in El Salvador we needed to show that we had money in the bank and property and you're talking about, uh, you know, a war and you're poor. So obviously, that's not the way that you're going to come, you know, um, in order to get a visa. And even though it doesn't sound like a lot of money, she's like, oh, and then, you know, it costs like $20. Dollars. So it wasn't like the currency at that time of El Salvador and $20 doesn't sound like a lot to us. But to someone that's poor, it, it's a lot of money. Um, and in that time. So that still continues to be true in some places. How, you know the the process that it takes to even get a visa to come here, the way people think is the right way. You know,
1: so it's interesting. It's interesting. I didn't I didn't know till you told me that crew joining staff with crew was really the first time that you'd kind of been around so many majority culture people. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's been. In the past few years, especially as reflected at our staff conferences, there's been more of an open discussion about Mm -hmm. just the reality of the majority culture, majority in our organization, and that Mm -hmm. um, the desire for every voice to be heard and reflected how do you think that's going just from your perspective? What, what has it been Mm -hmm. like kind of to be, I assume you were at crew 15 and crew 17 Mm -hmm. and to see the slow cultural shift that seems to be
0: happening. Yeah. So even before crew, um, 15, which was kind of like historical, you know, um, Because the high school ministry is so much smaller, we, you know, we already have experienced a lot of like, kind of like the, 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 the one that doesn't get maybe as acknowledged or talked about, you know, and so within our own community of high school leaders and ministry, There's so many barriers that we've had to cross. And so then on top of that, feeling like I'm the only one in this, you know, then I'm already feeling like I'm a woman. I have this story that maybe not a lot of people know about me, and I haven't really been around majority culture like this. So so that was already a place that I had to, like, learn to really navigate well and who to even... um, uh, navigate towards or gravitate towards that was a safe space, you know? And I think the great thing about, about it was that there was safe space of women in, in, in high school and women who are white that were a safe space for me, that I was like, wow, you know, the, the women who've trained me were white and they were kind and encouraging and motivated me towards the inner city ministry that, I, that you know, God called me to do and specifically Michelle Beckman, which is like a a huge name within the high school ministry and maybe even within crew, but a lot of people knew, um, Michelle, um, she was just, was the one that mentored me the most. And she, um, continued to always say, you need to like, use your voice. You need to use your voice. And I had uh, always felt very like, well, but what does my voice have to contribute? You know, what does it have to really say in a place where I felt very, um, unsure, you know? And so, and she would always say, use your voice, um, say what you have to say. And, um, right before Michelle passed away in 2016 from a battle with cancer and she, um, I texted her because she couldn't really talk towards the end. And she was with me through text a lot when my son was in the hospital. That year was really hard. That was the same year my son was in the hospital and I had been planning to go visit her. And, um, and that's when he got hospitalized. So as soon as he came out and, and we were in a, in a good place, I said, I'm going to come visit you through text. And she's like, oh, you have to rest. She was so sweet. She just like was so close to Jesus, you know, she's like, you have to rest. And you. I was like, but how can I not see you? I just really wanted to say goodbye to her physically, uh, you know, or see you later really. And so, um, before she passed, I texted her and I told her about my blog and I said, you know, I have to tell you this because I just want sort of um, an approval, I guess, of her, what she thought. And she was like, oh, that's a great idea. And um, really it was, she was another reason that really pushed me to want to push publish on on the blog was because she was always like, use your voice. And she, though she was white, she had experienced a lot of um, places where she had been marginalized as well, and hadn't felt like her voice had been heard. So there was a lot of, um, I used to say she was my soul sister. You know, we she had a lot of things that she understood about where I was coming from and my fears and the lack of experiencing sharing my voice. And so, so, so that already had kind of pushed me. But twenty sixteen was also very defining because it was when I finally shared my story of being undocumented and it was actually Michelle was there it was in and um when I did that before she passed and and um some staff people didn't have very nice things to say about it were you you sharing it in
1: person with a team okay
0: with a with several leaders of 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 um of crew and I just thought this is it's the time it's been years that I've been on staff I know these people or most of them and this is a good safe space. I wasn't the only one sharing my story. And it was a story. What we were all doing was a panel of ethnic staff sharing their ethnic experiences. And, um, you know, 2015 had already passed. So it was 2016. It was like, this is the moment where a lot of ethnic staff are kind of experiencing. 2015 had just been historical because it was the first time that a lot of ethnic staff could walk into, you know, Moby and feel like, Oh I'm actually being acknowledged. you know there is more people up front that resonate towards the way I look or the way I think. and there is actual genuine conversation about what we are all have been experiencing for years, people who currently are on staff and the many people of ethnic you know backgrounds who have left because of the hardship of it. And so it was just historical And to hear the other side, you know, I had people who, who would say, oh, it was just so draining to be in there. And it was like, I'm feeling like super hyped and pumped about it. And you're like, oh, it's just like every hit, like we're getting hit all kinds of way," And it was like, gosh, I finally felt like I was like I belonged and you feel now like you don't belong. Sort of like, oh, this is how we felt all along, you know, and so of course, and then 2017 added to it. So, so when, um, so 2016, I was just like, oh yeah, this is going to be good. We're going to share. And people, you know, there was a few staff that didn't really have, um, you know, said comments like, uh, you know, Janet and her mom didn't do things the right way coming to the U S or, um, uh, even later on someone, you know, saying one of, part of my story of sharing ethnic experiences on staff is um, when I joined staff, you know, I went to that <laughs> to that uh, training in Daytona and there was like, I think four or three of us who were ethnic, <laughs> who were of a different color. And that was like, Lord, what did you call me to do? I did, I've never been, you know, I went to this majority Hispanic church and I had, I had been around some majority culture people but not this much. Like I'm living with people, I'm, and so I went and talked to the people of when the people that give you all the advice on support raising, you know, and I just thought um, this is an international organization. So I go to a majority Spanish speaking church. It's already going to be hard because um, they don't even know what crew is, and so I'm going to need to explain clearly what crew is. Um, they, I'm, I'm pretty certain that they have material in Spanish for MPD that is, that I'll be able to present to the people that I know. A lot of them spoke English, but reading something in their language, you know, was just so important. Just like we talk about the Jesus film and people seeing the Jesus film in their language. So I just naturally thought that was a good question. So I asked You know, the guy said, you know, um, where's the material? What can I find the material in Spanish so I can tell, you know, my congregation about what crew is and what I'm going to be doing? And he looked at me and said, we don't have that and we're never going to have that. And if you want that, he's like, you can look at the Spain website. And I was like. Uh, Spain website. I don't even, I'm not from Spain. I didn't, I was just thinking all kinds of thoughts were going through my mind and I just ran away and I just cried and bawled. And I was like, how, why have you called me to this Lord? I, and this guy just tells me we're never going to have this in Spanish. So I shared that story in that group in 2016 and someone was highly offended that I had asked Um, for material in Spanish, this is way back now in 2016, because they said, how dare would you ask for something in Spanish when we live in America and we speak English? And I was like, okay. (laughs) And so I was like, wow, Lord, maybe I didn't want to share my story. (laughs) Maybe I didn't want to tell people about my struggles on staff or my undocumented history. Maybe I shouldn't have put my place in that, you know, my, myself in that place. And um, yeah, that was really hard because I didn't expect that. You know, I thought this is a safe place. Crew's moving towards this great direction. Um, and not everybody thinks that way. You know, I know it's a handful or maybe more than a handful. But, you know, to kind of have it said in your face is a little bit more like, oh, or said about you or even other stories of other staff that are hispanic or african-american or other you know ethnic staff that have been faced with questions that are very hurtful or even comments that are very hurtful or ignorant really just straight up ignorant and then how do you gracefully walk towards that and I really went home from that conference going uh nobody cares about me you know and who little old me who's gonna what is gonna I'm just a crew staff member and um and it it really didn't like my leadership was like this is not right and um and they had me and and, and this person that said a few things that were hurtful um meet and talk about it and they were like when this is not allowed this is not right this is not how crew is and that was like really honestly for a Maybe like a good day. I thought, nah, nobody's gonna do anything, and so it really did change the direction of. Wow, crew fifteen really was impactful. Like there are people that are really like you know, they because I just didn't think leadership was. They're gonna be like, man, that's sad. You know, that's a good. That's another story in this you know pocket of many stories. Um, to put in the pocket of many stories of other ethnic staff, but no, they they really came towards my defense, and um, I just re, re, I had reread again in Mark where Jesus rebuked, it says, those people that spoke harshly to this woman. And I was, I just felt like Jesus really did come for my defense, you know, and protected me through other people. And so though there's so many things that crew still is working through. And even in 2017, we saw, you know, a whole nother, sort of a whole nother pocket of new things that crew is still working on. I was like, you know, there's still, there's still hope. There's still hope that, um, that, that God is moving us in the direction of oneness, um, of diversity, of, um, uh, of reconciliation and, and even just what I'm really, what I really hope and I process and I want is really even a time of just lamenting, you know, that, that we can really sit and not because I have to acknowledge sometimes or even majority culture for them to say, like I have done a wrong specifically to someone, but I'm going to own the sin of the past and the sin just of my generations, you know, of the generations or of this country. And, and really, even though I didn't say something specifically to someone or I didn't hurt someone, I own that. And I want to own that myself as a believer and as someone that wants to love people well, You know, what are some, even some prejudice and some things I, as a Hispanic woman, as Latino woman, hold even against other communities that I want to lament in that, repent, and then unify so that we could grow. So yeah, you know, it's, it's a slow process, but there's great things that I know the Lord is doing and wants to do, and I'm hopeful he will do, um, because especially in the U.S., The crew has to be one of those organizations that does stand up and voice what the truth really is towards um, um, people of color in this country, you know. And and we have that platform and we just sometimes don't use it, you know, because we're a little afraid of like, well, if I say something, am I going to be considered politically this way or that way? And it's not about that. It's about what is right and what does the word say and where biblically, how do I stand, you know, a a biblical worldview and not a US worldview. Um, and that's why I think when the Lord said to me when I was becoming a citizen, and it's kind of like the bet like it's the cherry on top. Like who doesn't want to be a citizen of the US? But he immediately said, Remember, you're a citizen of heaven. I was like, Oh, okay. I need to just you know, remember that that's really where my home is. Um, Though it's great to be a citizen of this country and it comes with incredible benefits and I love this country. That's really where my home is. Remember, listener is for you. We
1: welcome your feedback. Email me at samantha.holland at crew.org or post in the Workplace Listener Podcast group. See you next time.